This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. It's Thursday, October 19th, 2023, from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Unleash the crackpot. Powell pleads. Sydney to sing. On the journalistic theory that if it pleads, it leads, I bring you the latest developments in the legal travails of Sydney Powell. You remember the former Trump legal advisor who made this vow on Fox Business? Sydney, at the outset of this broadcast, I said that this is the culmination of what has been a, over a four-year effort to overthrow this president, to first deny his candidacy uh, uh, the uh, election, but then uh, to overthrow his presidency. This looks like the effort to uh, to carry out an end game in the in the effort against him. Uh, do you concur? Oh, absolutely, and it's uh, it's been uh, organized and and conducted with the help of Silicon Valley people, the the big tech companies, the social media companies, and even the media companies. And I'm going to release the Kraken. Well, the Kraken has been cracked, and now the Kraken may flip because... Let's take you to Atlanta, where just moments ago, Sidney Powell, one of the 19 co-defendants in the Trump election case in Fulton County, pleaded guilty. MSNBC reporting there. The giant squid, which is the animal that gave rise to the Scandinavian myth of the Kraken, has the largest eyes of any animal on planet Earth larger still in manga form. But the Georgia law has a giant eye also. It's an eye preceded by an R and followed by a CO, RICO. I'm saying RICO, the RICO laws. Was that more tortured than the supposed bamboo and Italian satellite-influenced Arizona ballot fraud that was supposedly about to be unearthed by cyber ninjas? That was part of the Kraken Unleashing Project. There is one thing that is true about Trump and his allies. They are quick, and they cause dopamine spikes. So he and they meme their way into our consciousness with talk of krakens and cyber ninjas and Four Seasons commercial landscaping. If what you're looking for is a quick distraction, something sticky in a world awash in the flotsam of informational garbage, they're good at that. And that ecosystem, by the way, the flotsam of informational garbage, well, that is threatening the kraken's habitat. For the price of a cup of coffee and a $1,200 an hour lawyer, we can restore Kraken waters to their pristine mythological beauty that these denizens of the depths, these majestic beasts of pure bullshit, that they need to thrive. So anyway, 
The Trumps are good for a meme, and we, of course, pay attention. But attention isn't justice. It's certainly not accuracy. Attention takes time, but Powell was fenced in by facts. And after years and legal proceedings and efforts and documentation, she pled, and now it would seem flipped. I think in a similar way, we should look at the entire Trump political project as having a very established track record of failure. Not failure in policy or failure in fact, but failure at the thing that they're trying to achieve success in, politics. Not in every argument. They're great at social media dunking. But they do lose elections over and over again. And election deniers are really bad at winning any election that isn't already in the bag in a deep red district. And they sometimes lose in very red states too. He's a loser. The truth or judgment catches up. But politics is an endeavor with few very real actual data points. So Trump is something like a 200 hitter who once did deliver a key hit, but it would take a whole season to figure out that the guy's not very good at baseball. Sure, he can make a meme about it, he could get himself in the papers, he could sell that meme as an NFT, but politics isn't a 600 at-bat season. There's an election only every other year, and Trump's ability to get attention, which, you know, we kind of think of as a proxy or as a stand-in for influence, It makes it seem that Trumpism doesn't have serious vulnerabilities that the actual truth counteracts. Truth-based institutions, slow working though they are, and maybe disqualifyingly slow working, do undo so much of what Trump does. Okay, baseball I was talking about, let's switch sports metaphors. Trump and his acolytes, they're like Livy Dunn to the Simone Biles that is truth. Okay, I gotta admit it's not great because Simone Biles is undeniable. Maybe the truth is more like a Kerry Strug or someone who needs to be carried along, but then eventually sticks the landing in great pain. Maybe the truth is like former Negro leaguer Turkey Stearns or Cincinnati Bengal Icky Woods. In that, okay, gotta stop. I will stop. I promise to stop. But the point is, the truth sometimes catches up with most of the people around Trump, especially the ones who lied the worst, which isn't a triumph or an inoculation against all he's wrought, but it is something. And now we officially can let the Kraken watch stand down. We could disband the Kraken abatement brigade. The Kraken has been contained on her own recognizance. Powell faces six years of probation, will have to pay a $2,700 fine, ooh, but she is required to testify truthfully, not mythologically, about her co-defendants. On the show today, it's two interviews, because there's so much we need to get to you in a short amount of time. Yesterday, last night, I attended a live performance of The State. The State was the MTV sketch comedy show from the 90s that blew the minds of the people who saw it and went unremarked upon or unnoticed by perhaps the mass public, certainly the critics. Eight of the 11 members of The State who've gone on to become very influential of their own right are reuniting, delivering mostly their Gen X audience, the laughs that they remember, and some new ones. I talked to David Wayne, who is performing in these sold-out shows in a theater near you about the old days, the new days, and sketch comedy in general. David Wayne is my first interview, and my second interview is 
Michael Vickers, former Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence in the Obama administration. He is out with a memoir, by all means available, Memoirs of a Life in Intelligence, Special Operations, and Strategy. Faster, faster, we gotta go faster. The Kraken's attacking, and this is a disaster. The cephalopod thinks he owns the sea, and I pray to God that may never be. Faster, faster, we gotta go faster. The Kraken's attacking, and this is a disaster. We killed our captain, and he's not sorry. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Are you butt ugly with nasty ass taste? Do you like pancakes? Then come on down to Betty's No Good Clothes Store and Pancake House. Painted dresses for big fat hoggies, cheap tacky old fitting suits that were never in style, sticky tight clothes for old people, and pancakes. Mmm, and while you're here, why don't you check out our grubby, snotty little kids department where you'll find awful, itchy kids polyester jumpsuits that'll get the crap knocked out of them at school, and pancakes. So, put a bag on your head and hop on the ugly bus to Betty's No Good Clothes Store and Pancake House. Terrible, terrible clothes and pancakes. Betty's No Good Clothes Store I was showing my kids some sketch comedy from one of the great sketch troops that's actually a little hard to find. The state, do you remember the state mid to early or early to mid 90s, if you want to go chronologically, 11 members aired on MTV. So we saw what sketches we could that were available on YouTube. I think I might have to splurge for Paramount Plus. But then attached to that was an interview that I guess MTV put together. And I want to play you a clip of that from uh, about 1995. It's the kind of show that I think people watch a few times and then they start to really warm up to it and groove to it, whereas sometimes the initial reactions were like, what's this all about? And I think our, our, our philosophy is really that if you make jokes about, like you said, about things that you know and things that you've lived through, like things that are more pan-generational or that experiences that everybody has, then these shows will live longer. Like, I mean, hopefully we would like these shows to be fresh in, you know, I mean, this sounds stupid, but maybe in 10 years, you could still watch these shows and they'd still be funny because they deal with things that are themes that are sort of universal. So that's it. So there you heard state member Michael Patrick Jan talking about lasting 10 years. Well, it's 25 years or so since those words were said, the state is going on tour. And that first voice that you heard there about sketch comedy working like an inoculation that you have to build a tolerance for is David Wayne. He's the co-director of Wet Hot American Summer and the co-creator of Children's Hospital and Medical Police, and of course, one of the founding members of the state. David, welcome to The Gist. So happy to be here. I've listened to this for many, many years. I hope these shows stand the test of time for 10 years. I mean, that audio clip is so funny because we actually found that ourselves recently because we were 
putting we have various video content in our live show and we thought about putting it up during the live show and we even tested it and then we as we watched it up on the big screen we're like no that no that is so cringy it's cringy so we took it out because why? Because it's been so much more than 10 years? Or, I mean, or it's just is that, that a 25 year old thought the future equal 10 years? Exactly. It's just 25 year olds postulating and pontificating on the nature of comedy. I don't know. Didn't need it. Well, even if you all didn't, I, I, you probably did a little bit because there's a lot of meta comedy there. So even if uh, there wasn't a lot of explicit postulating, that idea of what comedy was had to uh, imbue the comedy of the state. Like I am sure you were saying, let's not be this kind of lame comedy. There were conscious discussions about that, right? Oh, 100%. Not only that, we spent most of our time doing that. We meant spent most of our time kind of gazing at each other and talking about who we were and where we fit in the pantheon of comedy and how great we were, a lot of that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we were in our early 20s and very excited about what we were doing. And we definitely, we talked about comedy yeah. constantly. Because that's about that's about the same age range as most rock bands that um, make it on their first shot. There are exceptions. There are, you know, the the classic 40-year-old sure. overnight sensation. But usually, right, a rock band will be early 20s and so infused with rebellion and we hate what everything else that comes before us is about. And we thought of ourselves as a rock band for sure, in every way. We 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 were like we are the rock and roll rebels of of comedy. And also we were in New York City where it was all about SNL and we grew up watching Saturday Night Live. And then we got to a point where we're like, we don't, that's not even the dream anymore because we have our own thing, which is cooler and better and we do it the right way and da, 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 and we're more in the, in the tradition of Monty Python and SCTV and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And so were you watching uh, SNL at the time and saying, this sucks. And now do you watch the same SNL that period and say, actually, it's pretty good. Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, the, the cocksure attitude certainly served us throughout that period where we just were, we were in a bubble. We weren't part of any larger, we weren't in the groundling scene or in second city. We were just had our own bubble of teaching each other how to do this stuff. And it, it served creating a, our own cohesive, unique voice, I think in retrospect. And so what was the relationship with MTV? Because there are many sketches where you or Thomas Lennon or one of the members would look to the camera and say, MTV didn't want us to do this sketch. Right. I mean, there was a lot of, a lot of, at least to the audience member, that you were so rebellious, you even re had to rebel against the cool dad that was MTV. Right. And we didn't have any idea how good we had it. Uh, but And we and the rebellion was real. And we, sometimes we exaggerated on the show, but... We, MTV at the time had just started doing narrative programming. Like we were the first ones to go out there with a camera that wasn't just a news crew. And a lot of our sketches were shot by camera people who were from news crews and, you know, to have costumes was a new thing. And, but, uh, we, every time any of the executives told us anything, we were basically like, fuck you, you know? And, uh, <laughs> the people running the network at the time were in their twenties. Also, it was, it was a crazy moment. What good advice did they actually have? I mean, we had this producer named Jim Sharp who was older than us and brought in from the outside and we grew to really respect him and he would give us advice like, you know, make sure there's, you know, to have the discipline of of writing a bunch of ideas before you pick one and, you know, to have a certain number of jokes on a page that's, you know, just certain and sometimes he would just 
we would want to shoot something. He'd be like, guys, come on, can't do that. Um, <laughs> more, uh, more than not, the MTV suits, uh, they were just doing their job, but we didn't like their notes. And we, uh, w- one story that's famous to us is we wrote a sketch that had a Bob Dylan reference and they said, you can't put that in because nobody knows who Bob Dylan is. This is in the nineties. Um, wow. And we were like, okay. And then in the entire first season, there's a reference in some way to Bob Dylan in almost every sketch. I was thinking of the one sketch that actually reminds me of rebelling against the cool parent where it's a Doug sketch where Michael Showalter is Doug and Thomas Lennon is his really cool dad. And it turns out that Thomas Lennon is Bob Dylan's exactly. uh, producer of his last right, three albums. Right. And, but that's also the uh, distillation of what do you do with when you have a cool dad? You got to find some ridiculous shit to that's, rebel against. That's what my kids do, even though they have the coolest dad in the world. <laughs> also, it's it seems like you got a lot of fuel over the negative reviews. Or were you, I mean, there were 11 of you. I'm sure there are a bunch of different emotions. Were you really hurt by the negative reviews? I mean, we were definitely bummed. I, it, the, the, the reviews that came out were so extreme, which I learned later as I got similar reviews to other things I had done that it, it really, I feel was critics seeing something and not knowing what bucket to put it in and not like, and and not, I mean, they certainly weren't, usually it wasn't like, I see where they're going or I understand why they think it's funny, but I didn't, it didn't work. It's usually more like, what is this? Why is this funny to anybody? It's so off my radar of what I think of as comedy. And so ultimately, yes, we wore it as a badge of honor and we made promos, you know, touting the bad reviews. And uh, I mean, they were so negative and people, this happened with Wet Hot American Summer also, where critics were searching for ways to say how bad it was. <laughs> um, it's it's like having a spikes pounded into my forehead. That's how bad this movie is. <laughs> Yeah. I think it probably has some, I mean, it's generational and it's not just, I don't get this or I don't like this or this doesn't work, but it's an anger at the thing. I think it's almost like, what are they trying to foist upon us? Well, I think the anger is also like, why, what am, what are some people getting that I'm not? And what, am I stupid? Like I'm like, Exactly. It's an anger. Do you think that, I think reviewing has changed a lot. You almost never see any of that anymore. Maybe it's, well, it's probably a lot of things. It's that reviewers are clinging to their power instead of knowing that they wielded and they probably don't feel that they're speaking to these kind of mass monolithic audiences. But I also think critics are just inherently nicer and I think therefore a little less insightful, but they don't want to seem uncool or not in on the joke. That's true. And I I just don't feel like the uh, whole idea of the reviews, uh, uh, there's less of it. You know, there, there aren't critics higher. You know, there's no critic for Newsweek anymore or, you know, all those places. There's barely a Newsweek. It's all more just like resp- reaction on Twitter and online. And it's a different. But did the critics, did bad critical press really actually matter then? If we're saying this was an age where the critics were all powerful, they weren't when it came to the state, were they? I wasn't all powerful. And the truth is not all the reviews were bad. You know, there they, we we just didn't really talk as much about there were a few you know there were a few reviews they were like this is really cool and interesting and um it was truly more mixed but the bad reviews were so memorable uh but i'm sure you know i don't the state never was a huge hit um it did okay uh but who knows how much the reviews had anything to do with that didn't you write under uh, a pseudonym or some fake newspaper a pretty good review of the state <laughs> 
Yes. <laughs> I wrote what I used my niece's uh, name um, and, a, and I created a fake newspaper called Manhattan Arts Review uh -huh. to promote, I think, one of our live shows. Um, but it had, a, it had a little, there were things that this reviewer didn't love, but overall it was a good review what did, to make it feel real. Did you not, did they not love the David Wayne parts? What didn't that reviewer like? <laughs> I, I, I don't remember. I know that this is many years ago. I don't know how you knew this. What but. was the point <laughs> of that review? Like where, there was no Twitter. What would you leaflet uh, it on the uh, trees near the NYU campus? Exactly. We, I think we passed it out. Uh, I, I, yeah, I don't know where we put it. But I printed it out so it would look like it was Xerox yeah. from a real newspaper. Yeah. And then I guess, yeah, maybe we put it in the dorm ma mailboxes. I don't know. You're engaged in disinformation, David. This 100%. is the first fake news. Yeah. Unbelievable. <laughs> you got Russian backing. I assume, I'm proud of that. <laughs> wasn't, wasn't Kerry's dad a diplomat or something? I, I may be making that, <laughs> that up. Kerry's dad is the voice of the state. He's a, he's a voiceover artist. Oh, a true artist. Um, yeah. I, so I'm looking, I'm thinking about the great sketch comedy troupe, Saturday Night Live's over on one place because they keep changing their membership. But there are a couple, of course, great duos, Key and Peele and Mr. Show. But then when I think of Kids in the Hall, five members, Monty Python, five members, if you know, the writing members, if you don't count Terry Gilliam, Human Giant, uh, three members. There it always seems to work well with an odd number. The state had 11 members. Was that to break ties? <laughs> it was helpful. We did often say, okay, if seven people say yes, then fine. But more often than not, our decision-making process was always through consensus, more like a jury. And so one person could stop the machine at any point. And so it was very frustrating for people where like a production designer would come in and say, do you want, what color do you want this chair to be? And we'd be like, all right, we'll get back to you. And then we'd all have a long talk about it and, and have a consensus discussion. Um, which was laborious, but we were young and we could stay up late and still be okay. You also had to really like each other to put up with that, didn't you? We did, and we did like each other. And we, whenever we, we would sometimes work for 24 hours and then we'd go out together. But um, we also fought constantly. Tell me a little more about the process. 11 people had to agree on every sketch? Yes, we, uh -huh. would, we would pitch stuff. When we, were in, when we got to the point of doing our TV show, we would pitch stuff, I think, every day uh, in a session, and then we would tear each other's material apart. And we had to learn the discipline of nobody take it personally and just, you know, come back, try it again, try it again, you know. And it was very, unlike some other groups, it was very writing-based. It wasn't improv so much. Um, and so we just really worked on these scripts, and we would pick Survival of the Fittest, and then we'd go shoot. Was there deal making, spoken or unspoken? I won't object to this one that I just don't get, and I'm not going to be in if of you course. don't do that to me. Really? I mean, eleven of us. There's all sorts of uh, you know group dynamics, and yeah, hey, support me on this one. So what happened? Uh, like you know, as you explained, eleven people, a network that is you're not doing great for the network. And from what I read, but you you fill me in, there were there was an offer to go to CBS, or your agent told you no, stay at MTV, and I guess you all had to decide at once. How did how was that move made? We had these producer managers, one of whom is a former agent, one of them was a former MTV producer, who they also shared in our rebel spirit and our. We did three seasons at MTV, and then they made us a very nice offer to come back and do a fourth season. MTV did. MTV did. Yeah. yeah. And we decided as a group, uh, no, screw them. We're going to network. And we 
found an, uh, you know, we got ourselves an offer to do a series of specials at CBS, uh, primetime specials, um, which at the time was basically Murder, She Wrote. You know, it was, in retrospect, the worst idea ever. But so... You mean the 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 coolness of CBS in general? Right. I mean, yes. the idea is that they were going to do specials and then ultimately we would go against SNL on Saturday nights. Uh-huh. Um, we... So we left MTV and then we self-produced this one-hour primetime special on CBS. It's called the State's Halloween Special. 43 years ago, a young comedy troupe, The State, broadcast their first Halloween special on CBS. 43 years of great memories and an occasional laugh. A grand tradition that sadly ends tonight. So now, it almost gives me great pleasure to introduce The State. I think it was the 46th annual or 43rd annual that, Halloween yeah, special. Yeah, that was the yeah. idea. Um, <laughs> and it turned out to be basically like 43 out of 44 in the ratings. Uh, <laughs> uh, it, it showed up on a Sunday night at 8 o'clock or something. Nobody watched it. And that was the end of that. And there was a, there was a bunch of other stuff. that There's a great Details Magazine article that I think is on our website that details like the, the, we there was an executive there who said some weirdly racist things to us when he met with us and then we blabbed about it to this magazine and then there was this whole scandal and it was crazy wow then wow. we ended up so we so our relationship with cbs ended and then we made this album and we wrote a book and we tried to develop a movie and all of that sort of petered out and then ultimately uh we started moving on to other things. The name of the tour is You Tell Me. It's called uh, The State um, Breaking Hearts and Dipping Balls Tour 2023. Yeah, I hope that's a promise. It, it, it is a promise from me to anyone listening who comes to see us. David Wayne is a founding member of the state. He and seven of his state brethren are touring now. You want me to tell you where? Okay, you don't have Google. October 11th, LA. October 25th, San Francisco. October 28th, the Lincoln Theater in Washington, D.C. Not to be confused by the other one, Ford. 25th and 26th in Chicago, Riviera Theater. And the 29th in Seattle, Moore Theater. That's the name of the theater, not how many additional dates they'll be adding. David Wayne, I want to thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. So nice to, to see you. This has been great. podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lips now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com 
Michael Vickers has served many, many roles in the government, in the military, in the intelligence community. From community college, he became a special operator, if you will. He then joined the CIA. His last role officially serving for the U.S. government was that he was appointed by President Barack Obama as the Defense Department's top civilian military intelligence official. His life story and his views on intelligence and operations are all collected in the new memoir, By All Means Available, Memoirs of a Life in Intelligence, Special Operations and Strategy. Michael Vickers, welcome to The Gist. Great to be with you, Mike. So we can talk about all manner of exploits from how to extract someone from a Suriname prison to, of course, the uh, famous war in Grenada. But I want to, and and that's all fun and intriguing and important stuff. But I want to start with a top level question. The difference between tactics and strategy, and you move from tactics to strategy to operations. As I understand it is strategy is what we're going to do and tactics is how we're going to do it. As someone who operated in both those fields, is there a different or other way that you conceptualize it? Uh, No, that's pretty accurate. I mean, um, tactics generally, you know, in military terms, it's generally how you fight a battle where strategy is more your plan for the war and how you use victory in battles to achieve your aim and campaigns to achieve your aims in a war. And then when you apply it on the on other elements of the national stage, you know, we talk about grand strategy, our strategy mm-hmm. as a country for achieving our ends, military and non-military around the world, and then operations or things we do to contribute to that, but not the only things. Yeah. So this here are some of my questions. One is the usual way that someone advances in their career, and you did, is you go from tactics, and if you're very good, maybe you get into strategy, and if you're very good, maybe you get into operations. You start seeing the bigger and bigger picture. So in the NFL, you'd be a position coach, and then maybe a coordinator, and then maybe the head coach. But it does seem that for what we need as a country, uh, or for what any country needs, there might be someone who's so great at tactics and just understands the battle field, but they'll get promoted to a place where maybe they aren't the grand conceptualizers of strategy. And by another token, there might be a person who sees the big picture, but you'd never want them on a battlefield. And yet it does seem the progression is always as I laid out. What do we do about that? Yeah, it's a a very insightful point, Mike. I mean, um, you know, our systems uh, tend to promote people incrementally as you perform jobs. And, you know, there was a famous book written several decades ago called The Peter Principle, which, you know, we eventually promote you to your level of incompetence. And as a famous military theorist, Carl von Clausewitz said in the 19th century, early 19th century, you know, as you go up from tactics to operations to strategy, it gets harder because the variables are harder to control, it's more complex. Um, etc. And so people who are good at tactics often are not good at strategy. And sometimes you find um, strategists who, like you say, you wouldn't want them in a foxhole next to you, but they're, uh, they're good at conceptualizing big things. And, you know, the challenge is to have the right mix of those people. And, to, and you know, we don't always succeed at that, but that's, uh, that's the art of it. So let's talk, I have another theory about tactics, which is this. Now, with America's, the state of America's military 2023, we eventually, and sometimes right off the bat, get the tactics right. We just seem so excellent at tactics. And I don't know, with it, we, the war in Afghanistan was not a victory, and the war in Iraq was 
uh, ambiguous or ambivalent at, at best. However, it seemed that even though at times we didn't use the right tactics, we eventually figured out because we have so much money and so much manpower and so much expertise, we eventually figured out the right tactics. So let me just pause there. Do you agree with that? Uh, on a tactical level, have we been getting most of the big questions right? Yes, and that's different from big part of American history, where initially we might not get it right, World War II, for example, but then with our industrial might and our ability to learn, we do get it right and then beat our adversaries. You know, since the late Cold War, we have really excelled at tactics. And so, you know, as you rightly noted, at the beginning of wars, we're often quite good, and our challenges are more than in the strategy realm. You know, are we pursuing... Uh, do we do the right thing too late, for example? Um, you know, so Iraq and Afghanistan are different cases. Afghanistan, we got the tactics right right away. In Iraq, you know, we stumbled, but then learned and were able to put down the rebellion. Um, but then over the long haul, we got the strategy wrong in Afghanistan in a sense that, uh, you know, at the end of the day, we accepted defeat when, you know, we had a stalemate, but it took too long in a way for the patience of some um, um, to, you know, achieve a reasonable outcome. So do me a favor, go back to the first, uh, the, our, our first war, the Russian invasion of Afghanistan, and you were directly involved in America's mm -hmm. covert war there. We didn't always get the tactics right, but then eventually we came around to, can you talk, uh, can you give me a couple examples in the eighties about what we got wrong and then what we got right and how, and why we changed? Sure. So, um, you know, the good things about Afghanistan in the 80s is, you know, uh, we opposed the Soviets right away. So within 10 days of the Soviet invasion and in Christmas 1979, uh, we were helping the Afghan resistance. But all our analysts didn't think we could win. And so we kind of our goal was just to impose costs on the Soviets. And so we settled for this stalemate. And then in 1984, Congress quadrupled the budget of CIA right at the time I was coming in as the program officer, which is serendipitous. And uh, it looked like then we had a chance to maybe do something more. And so we really adapted our, our tactics across the board and increased the scale and speed of our program by a factor of 10 um, within a year and caused the Soviets um, to withdraw. So it took us some five years to really get it right. Um, but we were able to build on, build on that, you know, and Ukraine sort of follows that example. Yeah. Syria is a case where we never really got it right. We kind of went in too late and too small. And so therefore, you know, uh, the Syrian regime backed by Russia and Iran and Hezbollah were able to prevail. So, uh, Afghanistan in the eighties is a good example of more or less how to turn a stalemate into a victory. Well, less people think, oh, so what he's saying is you just throw more money at it. That's part of it. But, you know, you could tell the story of our evolving intelligence, our evolving tactics through a missile program or a weapons program. The Stinger missile sort of tells right. that story and does in the book. Could you take me through that? Right. So uh, in addition to quantity, there was also a quality aspect. You know, the one thing the Soviets had um, was air superiority in, in Afghanistan. And so giving the insurgents surface-to-air missiles. We started with Russian-made ones. Uh, they're called SA-7s. 
and then switch to uh, some British ones. Uh, pre- uh, prime, former Prime Minister Maggie Thatcher made a real bold decision, and then President Reagan with the Stinger. And that then kind of forced the Soviets to fly much higher where they were less effective and, and led to a lot of shootdowns of their aircraft and helped turn the tide of the war. It wasn't the only thing, but it, but it mattered. Right. Right, right. The Remington wasn't the rifle that won the West, and the Stinger didn't win Afghanistan, but boy, did it help. Boy, did it help. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about Afghanistan and the uh, initial decision to uh, for the United States to go in and to sustain the war. There were two ways of looking at the lessons from the 80s, the covert, covert war. One lesson, and I think maybe more those on the left took this, is Afghanistan equals graveyard of empires. Don't go in there. The United States should have learned from the Soviets. The other lesson, I think this is more of the nuanced take that someone like you would take, is that the United States did engage in a proxy war, covert war in Afghanistan. And you could argue, the, if not the United States won, certainly the enemy of the United States lost. So in the 80s, our interests were advanced via military engagement in Afghanistan. With with these two top-line ideas competing, why did you uh, endorse the second one as opposed to saying, nope, don't go in Afghanistan or just go in very quickly um, because it is the graveyard of empires? Yeah, so it's a bit of a mixed uh, answer to your question. You know, one, we were 9-11, we had the, the worst attack on American soil since Pearl Harbor and actually more casualties than Pearl Harbor. Um, and so we had to respond. And I think the Bush administration respond the right way by a, what we call a small footprint approach using special forces, CIA with air power and the Afghan resistance to do the fighting and toppled the Taliban in short order. So that was all good. Al-Qaeda fled to Pakistan. We were able to deal with Al-Qaeda over time. Uh, took some years, but we were able to deal with them. But the Afghan insurgency that Pakistan supported was a persistent problem. And there, you know, I think we succumbed to some strategic overreach. So it's not that we necessarily could have just fought and left Afghanistan. um, But where we ended up in 2015, which was Afghans who were doing the fighting against the Taliban, and we were supporting them was the right place to be. And we probably should have gotten there sooner to make it more politically sustainable, you know, for mm-hmm. the type of conflict. If you're going to fight a long war, again, you know, it's got to be sustainable in, in, in our political system. Okay, so here's a critique. Often in your book, you talk about the mistakes that the United States made, and you even mention this in terms of the Soviets, that essentially they took their eyes off the prize and the Americans took our eyes off the prize after the Soviets were repelled in Afghanistan. The U.S. lost track, essentially didn't pay enough attention to al-Qaeda. Our eyes were off the prize. Same thing, war in Afghanistan, and then we get engaged in a war in Iraq. Eyes off the prize. We're constantly distracted from our main mission. But I would say that you... You and those of your ilk, you are exceptionally serious, focused people. And you have to be. If you're parachuting into enemy territory with a nuclear weapon strapped to your back, I don't think, however, that 
the American system or maybe Americans themselves have that sort of focus. And to be kind about it, I don't know if it's necessarily a critique of our character. America is a very dynamic place with a lot of competing interests. And we have elections every couple of years. So maybe we should learn from history and price this all into our strategy. The fact that we are not going to be able to remain focused. History has proved this. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. You know, one, you know, you want healthy competition and accountability in the political system. So we change, you know, policies and leaders and policies. But you also want some continuity that's in broader American interests and areas of, of common agreement. You know, and we had that for a chunk of the Cold War, not not all of it, but a big chunk of it. And for a period of time after 9-11 and um but on the other hand, the reality is we do have these swings. And so if you're just a strategist trying to give the best advice to the political leadership that comes in, you'd be foolish not to take that into account and try to build in some, some hedges to it in, 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 in some cases. Because, you know, the danger, as you say, is to kind of go all in with these distractions and think, okay, well, this, this is not really a distraction. It's just the new reality. And it's often not. It is a distraction. So the last thing is uh, I wanted to mention is you were one of the 51 uh, intelligence officials or former intelligence officials who signed a letter that stated that the Hunter Biden laptop story had the classic earmarks of a Russian information operation. And I understand and I think many of us understand why that would have seemed the case at the time. But knowing what we know now, do you regret signing that letter? Yeah, in general, um, you know, a lot of... uh People I deeply respect, uh, you know, Russian experts and stuff signed the letters. You said there was lots of reasons to believe the Russians were continuing to meddle. They had done lots before. Bipartisan Senate committee, five-volume report documented that for 2016 uh, and, and, and released reports that it was continuing. Um then, but then going to the specifics without any real specific information, as the letter was careful to say, um, um, I think was a misjudgment in a sense that, you know, it, it does, the overall theme could be true that the Russians are intervening. That doesn't mean this operation is true. You know, there are lots of, you know, it's Occam's razor. You know, the most obvious explanation is there's some business deal going on and other things. And, you know, it is what it looks like. And uh, it's it's not something else, even if it looks preposterous. So in that sense, yes, I think it, I think it was a mistake. But But as you noted at the time, you know, faced with that information that, you know, the, I don't think any American would want the Russians intervening in our election. And uh, so warning about that, but the warning probably should have been more general rather than specific. So one follow up to that and kudos for your after action uh, assessment of the situation. But even at the time, I suppose the immediate consequence of the story was that it was generally suppressed on social media. You could have signed the letter, but not wanted that to happen. So did you, when you saw the suppression, and I don't know how much you were paying attention, but when you saw that this New York Post story at the time was not allowed to circulate on Twitter, did you say to yourself, well, that is a proper consequence of what I signed? Oh, absolutely not. But I mean, to your other point, I didn't know that was occurring at the time. And, uh, and 
you know, I, I still don't know all the details of this, but I don't believe the FBI malicious. I worked with the FBI a lot of years. They make mistakes, but they're good people. And I don't believe they would maliciously suppress stuff. I believe they thought there was a threat, a Russian threat to the American election. Some bad consequences, I think, came out of that from confluence of factors and stuff that ought to teach us a lesson. But I, uh, I don't think anybody wants, um, you know, freedom of expression or the, or the right answer to be suppressed. Michael Vickers served in the U.S. Army Special Forces. He served in the CIA. He was ultimately Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence. He worked in the Obama and George W. Bush administrations and is the author of By All Means Available, Memoirs of a Life in Intelligence, Special Operations and Strategy. Thank you so much. Great to be with you, Mike. That's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Corey Wara. The senior producer is Joel Patterson. Michelle Pesca is CLO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast for advertising inquiries. Go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Jeeperoo, Dooperoo, and thanks for listening.